You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. I was sick, can you tell? So I'm gonna have to ask for a lot of grace today. My voice is a little weak. You'll probably get a little stronger version in the next service, but it's really good to be here with you. If you're visiting with us, my name is Matt Nickerson. I'm a lead pastor. I was out last week, and so I apologize you didn't see me, but we're here today, and we're finishing up Galatians, and there's so much to say in this book that we're not gonna get to. And so I'm looking at maybe trying to record a video, put it out on Facebook or something, because there's a really two or three good messages that I think we need to dig in further. We're just not gonna get to them today. But what I wanna get to today is this question. You ready? Who do you want to be when you grow up? Okay, so a couple of you look a little older. Maybe you think you've already grown up. Let me just start when I was a kid, and let me tell you a little later where I am today. When I was a kid, I wanted to be Bo Jackson. Remember Bo? If you are old enough to remember Bo, you're probably at least 35 years old. Bo Jackson was an amazing player. He wasn't, I don't think he was the first two-way player, but he went baseball and he went football and he was just an amazing, amazing athlete. He was just phenomenal. Uh, And I played a lot of sports and so I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like every little kid, you got this person you wanna be when you grow up, I'm gonna be Bo Jackson. And that was great as long as I was in the process of playing sports. But what I quickly realized is I wasn't quite as good as Bo Jackson in some of those sports. I know that will surprise some of you. and so then I quickly latched on to another person I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be Vanilla Ice. Because, <clears throat> why does that seem so? I don't know if you think it's funnier that I wanted to be Vanilla Ice, or you think I'm probably closer to being <laughs> Vanilla Ice. But I wanted to be Vanilla Ice. And so I started learning how to dance. I started like wearing parachute pants from the MC Hammer days. How many of you guys remember those? Anybody else buy those? Make me feel better about myself, please. Okay, nobody raised their hand, I'm just kidding. And uh, I learned how to dance, I learned how to do splits. And uh, <clears throat> something crazy happened. Like in January, Bo Jackson broke his hip uh, playing football. It was tragic. You guys remember that? It was terrible. It was like, what's going to happen? And three weeks later, I broke my hip dancing (laughs) at a school dance in eighth grade. Coincidence? (laughs) So all of a sudden, what happened when I was around 12, 13 years old, God started to deconstruct my view of what I wanted to be when I grew up. Because all of a sudden, I went from this kid who played multiple, multiple sports to I couldn't play any sports, I couldn't dance anymore, I couldn't do anything. And what I found was, and this is the key for today, my identity had become wrapped up in what I could do. See, when I start to realize that it is not about what I can do or how I perform, but I am something because God has made me that, It changes the way I see everything about my life. Now, I have three little boys. For those of you who don't know me very well, I have three little boys, 10, 8, and 5, and I love them to death. I tend to use sarcasm and like off-the-wall humor, and it took me a long time to realize that my kids, when they were young, were literal and didn't understand my humor. And my second son, especially Levi, he's very, very literal, and I've gotten his permission to use this illustration. So when he was like, three to five years old, we'd be watching like a Superman cartoon or something, and I would look at him and say, oh man, I wanna be Superman when I grow up. And he would look at me and he'd go, really, daddy? 
And I'd be like, oh yeah, I just can't wait till I can fly. I've been trying so hard. And I would think this is so obvious that I'm joking, but he took it literal and he'd be like telling his mom, mom, dad said he wants to be Superman when he grows up. Well, then he would come to me when he found out that I was joking. He'd be like, dad, why'd you lie to me? And it like ruined him. Like for a long time, he's like, I don't know if I could trust you, dad. You never tell me the truth. You said last week, you want to be a giraffe when you grow up. And I thought you were serious. This actually happened in my home. So the reason I say all this is because it took me a long time to kind of start to discover what does it mean to actually be who God made me to be? And then the bigger question is, then who did God actually make me to be? So who do I want to be when I grow up? My answer is this. I want to become more like Jesus. And I know if you're visiting with us, you'd expect a church and a pastor to say that. I get paid to say that. But the truth is, that is our mission statement. That's our goal as a church. We can measure how we're doing in life as men and as women, as husbands and fathers and mothers and daughters and sons and pastors and leaders and people who are just pursuing after God. Do we look more like Jesus today than we did six months ago or a year ago or whatever it is? But if you're visiting with us and you don't understand that language, it might bring up a good question for you. And that is this, what is so special about Jesus And the reality is, there's a lot of things. I don't have time to unpack them all for you. Every week, I tell you a little bit something unique about Jesus. But here's one thing. Jesus found the secret to joy. Jesus, in the midst of literally being crucified, had joy. Jesus, in the midst of being hungry, had joy. In the midst of being persecuted or mocked or made fun of or didn't, people didn't believe in him, he had joy. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to be able to know exactly how Jesus did that. How did Jesus find joy? What's really more profound than that even, in John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus actually goes on, he says this, I have told you this, what is the this? Get there. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So what Jesus is trying to do in us is give to us the very thing that he discovered that we can't find on our own, joy. And the problem for most of us who are Americans, which I think fits for everybody in here, is we think joy is found in a place where we never seem to find it. We think in America, because we live in this amazing country with all amounts of freedom, that if I just experience more freedom, if I can do what I want with who I want, when I want, where I want, how I want, why I want, then I'll be happy. And we see this in our lives all the time. We buy more stuff, we experience more stuff, we do more stuff, we be with more people, and yet we don't always feel more happy, do we? I mean, temporary happiness, yeah. I mean, it feels great, right? When you get a new outfit and you put it on, you're like, man, I make this look good. Like, they made that for me. But then it's temporary. And then you need another outfit. You get a new car, and you think, Man, I love driving down the road in this new car. People notice me, people see me, and I'm awesome. And then you get a few thousand miles down the road and you think, you know what I really need right now? A new, new car. You paint a room in your house and you think, I want to have everybody over so they can see how I've decorated my home or whatever it is. And then you have people over and you're like, that felt so good. And you do that 10 or 15 or 20 times. And then you're sitting there one day and you're watching HGTV and you're thinking to yourself, why do I still have cable for crying out loud? And you go, you know what is wrong with this house? I know what's wrong. I need to redo the kitchen. 
Some of you are like, ha, 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 he's talking to you, hon. And the things that bring us temporary joy don't bring us lasting joy because they were never made to do that. And that gets us into what we want to talk about when we look at Galatians today. So, Galatians, chapter five, verse 13. Paul says this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. The whole point of what Paul's about to build into. So if you haven't been with us, you've been out, or maybe you're just moved into town, or you're checking out Kingsway, whatever it is, tuning in online for the first time, welcome all of you watching at home. We're glad you're doing that. But here's the nutshell. What Paul has done for basically four, four and a half chapters is he has set up the concept of freedom and the whole idea that in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from following the rules and the lists and the laws that we were told for centuries we had to follow. Now, in Paul's day, there were many, many religions, um, but the, the two he's primarily dealing with would have been the, the pantheon of the Roman, Greek, whatever, Greco-Roman gods, myths, you've heard about many of those, the Zeuses and the Neptunes and the Athenas of the world, and then also the Jewish Bible, because Christianity was birthed out of Judaism. And so what Paul's dealing with in his day is you've got this group as a whole set of lists and rules, the Greco-Roman world, the pagan world of the day. What they would have been taught is in order to get Zeus to do something for you, you have to do something for Zeus. And they would have had a specific set of rules. If Neptune is going to do something for you, you do something for Neptune. And then you have a specific set of rules. And then you had the Old Testament, which had over 600 rules of do these things and don't do these things. And God says, if you follow those, I will be with you. I will be for you and I will bless you and your children and their children to a thousand generations. And so you've got all these people dealing with all these rules and all these laws and the rules and their laws don't always go together. Sometimes they very clearly conflict each other. And so you have a group of people struggling with what do we have to do to live the right way? And Paul comes in and basically says, the only thing you have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. And that kind of rocked the church. And that's rocking some of you. I've talked to some of you. One lady, uh, I don't know when she's doing this. I don't know if it's today or it was last week. I don't know. I heard about a lady who uh, has been attending Kingsway for roughly six months or so. I don't know the details, but... Um, has confessed or at least said that she would like to be baptized because she had been struggling with feeling worthy enough because of the different rules and the laws. And she's starting to understand that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. That's hard though, right? And the reason that it's hard, let's be honest, is because we know there are certain things we should do and shouldn't do. Like, is it okay if I murder my neighbor then? Grace. Maybe the better question is, is it okay if once in a while I just murder my kid? Just kidding. It's a joke. Nobody thought it was funny. It's okay. But what about other things? What if I just have one too many drinks one time and then I drive my car? Somebody gets hurt. Grace. 
what if I just flirt with that person at work a little bit? It never goes anywhere. It's just a private thing between me and them. Grace. Where is the intersection between grace and faith? And after Paul has made very clear four chapters, we are saved not by anything that we do. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Now what he wants to do is hammer out the intersection between faith and action. Faith and obedience. And what he's trying to make clear to us is if we want to be truly free, then we have to be free the way God defines freedom. And what that means is this. When Paul speaks of freedom, he doesn't mean what we often mean in America, doing what I want, with who I want, when I want, how I want, why I want, where I want. Instead, what it means is it means something more like free to be who God made me to be. And I know that's a really overused statement in our culture that is not what I mean when I use it. And so I'm going to do my best to put some handles on this for you today. But if you were to just quit this message right now, you could feel very justified in doing any number of things that you wanted to do because you're like, well, this is who God made me to be. And that's not what I'm trying to say. And I don't believe that's what God's trying to say for you today. So if you care at all about the subject, just tune in with me and go on this journey and let's just see if I can help bring to light a little bit of this conversation. When I say free to be who God made me to be, perhaps the way I should say this is remade me to be, because in the very beginning, before sin entered the picture, God had made Adam and Eve and there was no sin at all in the world. There was nothing broken in the world. Nobody was hurting anybody. Nobody's lying anybody. Nobody's deceiving anybody. In their relationship, there was complete harmony and unity, just like we've always longed for in our homes. That's who God made us to be. But sin came into the picture, and it wrecked the whole thing. The whole thing. What we find in Jesus, when we come back to God through Christ, is God is remaking us, restoring us into the image he had always imagined us to in the first place. But maybe what we need to do first, for those of you who are wondering and aren't sure, what is sin? Like, what, what is sin? Really, the best way to describe sin is these two little things, and they go together. You can't have one without the other. It's like love and marriage, right? Um, the first thing is this. Sin is anything that separates us from God. You gotta get that first. So any activity in your life that separates you from God would be a sin, when I say separates, I don't mean like God is standing over there going, you idiot, you moron, I can't believe you did it again. That's not God. God doesn't do that. What I mean is when you're committing an act that he has specifically said, I don't want that for you. That's not the best way to do life. That's not the way I made you. Anything that separates us from God. And number two, and add to that, it's both and, not either or, Anything that is breaking who we were created to be originally, as in before sin ever entered the picture. When you put those two things together, you get a good picture of what sin is and what it means to sin. And here's how freedom intersects these two things. And I hope this makes sense. The reason freedom intersects these two things is because in ourselves, we constantly want to 
do what we want to do. We want to be in charge of our own lives. And as a byproduct of that, we find ourselves either doing things that separate us from God because we want to be God, or we find ourselves not living the way that God has created us to live, and we find ourselves separated often from others as a byproduct of doing that, and we think we're getting joy because we feel temporary pleasure, temporary happiness, temporary whatever it is, love, temporary fulfillment, temporary whatever, but it doesn't last. And so what Paul says to us, in many of his books, what Paul says to us is we're not really free, we're actually in chains. And we're actually what he calls slaves to sin. We actually are just obeying sin and its works over and over and over again because we have this sin problem where we just keep doing things that separate us from God. And because of that, we don't find ourselves going to him to get what we need out of life. We're not going to him to get the love that we need. We're not going to him to get the strength that we need. We're not going to him to get the patience that we need. We're not going to him to get what we need, what he desperately wants to give us so that we can have the life that he's always wanted to give us, the one that actually brings joy. But instead, we're constantly taking life into our own hands to try to manage it on our own. And as a byproduct, we're not free, but we're actually slaves. Now, if you're struggling to get this, you're like, oh, Pastor, I'm not sure I understand how this affects me in any way in my life. Maybe the best way to do this is to just test it for a second. You ready? We're gonna run a test. Okay, so if I were to ask you the question, is there anything in your life right now that if, if God were to just name it specifically and say, I want you to get rid of that, it could be a person, a thing, whatever it is, an activity, something you think you enjoy a lot, if God were to come to you and say, I want you to get rid of that, is there a part of you that feels sad or frustrated or scared? Is there a part of you that would feel exposed? Because freedom means you could do that thing. You could buy that thing. You could be with that person, whatever it is. But Christian freedom says, but is that what God has in mind for you? Is that what God has built you for? Is that what God created your body to do? Is that making you more like Jesus? I once read an article by a guy, um, he's a Christian counselor or pastor, and uh, he was talking to some young college guys. He was doing like this little conference thing and it was specifically about um, many guys who struggle with uh, pornography. And, uh, excuse me, and uh, he was talking to this one guy afterwards. This one guy's like, I'm not addicted. And he's like, you're not. And he was talking to the guys about how addiction and slavery, the, the Bible says slavery, but we use the word addiction, but they're really kind of, they go one of the same. But he said, you're not. He said, yeah. He said, so you can stop anytime you want. He said, absolutely. He said, okay. He said, when does your next uh, Playboy magazine come in? The guy said, I think it comes in this coming Tuesday. He said, okay. He said, oh, here's what I want you to do. Don't take it out of the plastic. I just want you to leave it sitting on your bed and call me in a week. And he talked to the guy a week later. He said, so how's it going? Did you look at the magazine? He said, well, yeah, I did. He said, really? He said, I thought you said you could stop anytime you want. He said, I did. I didn't look at it for like 48 hours. And the counselor, Christian counselor, looked at him and he said, you do realize that's still the definition of slavery. The fact that you resisted temporarily but immediately went back to it just means that it's controlling you. You don't have freedom from it. You don't have joy with it. 
Because you couldn't find joy apart from it. So when I ask the question, is there anything in your life that you would be afraid like God would take it away from you? Look, I'm not talking about your spouse or your kids. I hope not. It is possible to make an idol out of a child or a spouse. But is there something else that when I said that came arose in you? Like, oh, dear God, you can have anything, but please don't take that away from me. Because it's quite possible whatever that is is the very thing that's keeping you from finding the joy that God has for you. Let me see if I can make this a little bit clearer. Galatians chapter five, verse 16. Paul says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. In other words, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God filled you with his spirit so that you would have the power, the strength, the wisdom, the knowledge, the insight to live in a way that pleases God. The word here used for flesh is actually the Greek word sarks. Nobody cares. I just like to geek out on this stuff. But here is a good definition of sarks. I got this out of the helps word studies. Actually, you can find this stuff online, but sarks is generally negative in the New Testament, referring to making decisions or actions according to self. They are done apart from faith and independent from God's in working. Thus, what is of the flesh or it's carnal is by definition displeasing to the Lord. Even things that seem respectable In short, flesh generally relates to unaided human effort. Decisions or actions that originate from self or are empowered by self. This is carnal or of the flesh and proceeds out of the untouched, unchanged part of us. The parts of us that are not yet transformed by God. Let me just boil that down for you. What Paul is trying to get to is this. You're either gonna live your life to please yourself or you're gonna live your life to please God. That's basically what it comes down to. Like the pastor, we just spent four weeks talking about freedom, about how we're saved by grace through faith. Oh, absolutely. But we were saved from sin so that we could live for God. It's the difference between wearing myself out every day trying to be good enough for God or somebody and going to bed every night knowing no matter what, by Jesus, I am good enough. And yet by Jesus, I'm gonna become who God made me to be. Paul goes on and he wants to put some handles on this for you. This is what we would call a vice list. And there are different ones in Paul's writings and they don't all say the same thing, which means this isn't an exhaustive list. And you take all those lists and put them all together and they're still not exhaustive. Paul is trying to give categories, ideas, types of things that exist when we're living for ourselves versus when we're living for God. Here's his list in Galatians, Galatians chapter five, verse 19. He says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. How about this one? Hatred discord. You ever been a part of a group of people creating division somewhere? 
Happens on our politics and on social media all the time. It's an act of the flesh. Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and just in case somebody didn't get covered here and the like. All are guilty, right? Including your pastor in some way or another. We all are covered. So what does that mean? Paul wants to make crystal clear. Guys, you are free in Jesus, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the things that originally separated you from God in the first place. That's not what Christian freedom means. And he goes on and he gives a warning that is profoundly strong. Please hear this today, because it doesn't get any stronger than this. In verse 21, the second part, he says this, and I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. When I was a youth pastor at my last church, um, they would occasionally have these hard conversations with the staff. My pastor, a few years ago, he came up here and spoke when I was out of town. His name was Alan. And he told a story about me. Um, I'm embarrassed to say it's true. It's not that big of a deal. But I thought it would be, um, everybody was like getting permission to paint their offices, but I wanted to paint my office Cleveland Browns orange. And so my grandiose idea was I was gonna cover my window and paint my office and then ask for them to bless it after the fact. Apparently, some of you have kids and know this doesn't go over well, but I didn't have kids back then, and I didn't think anything of it. And I'll never forget, the reason I'm tying these things together is because then uh, the leadership of that church, I was, a, I was a poor little youth pastor at the time, and uh, the leadership of that church called me in and said, uh, Matt, we need to have a come to Jesus conversation. And at first, I was stubborn and I was hard-hearted. I wouldn't repent. I was like, I don't, what is the big deal? Like all these people are painting their offices and who cares if you tell me, no, I'll just go back and repaint it whatever color you want. Like it's not that big of a deal. And then one of my friends, who was also one of my bosses, he looked at me and said, this is so out of character for you. I, I think we just need to stop talking so you can go home and take a deep breath and calm down because this isn't like you. And I think you're, you're trading credibility right now that you don't need to trade over this. He said, but Matt, your heart is not one of submission. It's not one of unity. It's not one of love. Something's off in you, and I don't know why paint on a wall has got you sideways. So here's what I know. The reason I tell you that story is because when we get confronted with truth, our tendency is to rise up and feel the need to defend ourselves to put the best version forward of ourselves that we can create and put it out there for all to see and to argue why we're right when what we really need to do is just die. To just lay down, unite with Christ, come to Jesus and say, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of arguing. I'm tired of being defensive. The truth is, I need help. I need help. 
the message that I don't have time to get to today that I hope I get a chance in the next couple weeks to maybe create and push out through social media, maybe we'll deal with it in the next couple months we do a series here on community, is that's really how Paul ends the, the book of Galatians. That when you see your brother who has stumbled into sin, you who are spiritual, come alongside them and help. Because the reality is for all of us, life is hard and it's full of temptations and you have an enemy who hates you. And he wants to steal, kill, and what's the last word? Destroy. And I can promise you this, if you aren't feeling the weight of his attack today, just hold on. It's only a matter of time. He's laying traps and plans that you can't even now see or understand necessarily, but when it starts to become clear, you'll go, how did I not see that? And when you do, you'll have a choice. Will you live for yourself or will you live for your Father in heaven? This is why Paul goes on. And he says in Galatians chapter five, verse 23, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, and peace, and forbearance, patience. What's interesting about that little word is throughout the scriptures, the word patience and the word forbearance actually means long-suffering kind of changes the way you think of patience, right? Like when your kid is out of control, when your spouse is not acting appropriately, when your friend has stabbed you in the back, when your pastor is messed up in some way or another, long-suffering. That we suffer long on behalf of the other person. And you go, how can I do that? You can only do that because God is remaking you into the person he had originally created you to be. You do not have the strength on your own. You do not have the power on your own. You do not have what it takes in yourself. In the same way you can't save yourself, in the same way you can't bring out from within yourself what you need to get the job done. That's why the Spirit is producing in you kindness and goodness and faithfulness, and gentleness, and notice this, what? Self-control. It's spirit-driven self-control. Do you hear the difference? When we think of self-controlled America, we think try harder, work harder, discipline more. When the Bible talks about self-control, it says, no, 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 you don't have what it takes, God's gonna give it to you so that you have what it takes. This is why he goes on. He says, against these things, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have died. They've crucified the flesh with his passions and its desires. So we live by the spirit. So let us keep in step with the spirit. So let me see if I can just make this as clear as I know how to make it. Ready? Jesus knows joy. Jesus wants to give you joy. Jesus knows joy is found in freedom. But Jesus knows freedom isn't defined the way you might be defining it. Freedom instead is found in being who God made or remade you 
to be. So the question for all of us is, how do we respond to God in light of all of this? Well, two things. Paul says in Galatians chapter six, verse seven, do not be deceived here. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from their flesh will reap destruction, but whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So what do I do? Well, maybe the better question to ask is, who do you want to be when you grow up? When I grow up, I want to be like Jesus. The problem for me is when I look at texts like this, I feel really overwhelmed. Can I just be honest? I feel like a failure because I look at Jesus and um, I remember just yesterday I had to apologize to one of my kids because I snapped at them when we were in Colorado and I said, look, I don't ever want you to think that that's who God is. That's not God. That was me. I was sick and I was tired and um, you were irritating me and I love you, but I snapped at you and that's not God. That's me and I'm sorry. And then I read passages like this and I go, forbearance, and I go, God, I'm so far from who I need to be yet. So one of the ways that I've learned to kind of put handles on this for myself as I look at other godly men and women that I go, I wanna be a little bit like them in this way. Let me tell you about a few of them. One of them is a guy named Jeff Lee, and Jeff doesn't know I'm gonna say this, and I don't know if he's in here right now, but Jeff is one of our teachers here. He's been leading the 8 a.m. gathering for me for the last couple months. And I've just had two brief conversations with Jeff over the last couple weeks. But Jeff didn't even mean to, but he encouraged my faith. Jeff is a former pastor. He's a son of a pastor, so I have an affinity for him because um, I'm hoping my kids will turn out as good as Jeff does one day. And um, Jeff just has this energy, this effervescence about him, if you know Jeff. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of faith. He'll be the first to tell you he's not perfect. And I'm sure if you sat with him, he could probably list for you a long ways that he's not quite where God wants him yet. But when I see Jeff, I wanna have more faith like Jeff. So I listen to Jeff and I talk to Jeff and I try to grow in the ways that I see Jeff is more like Jesus than I am. There's another guy in here. He's actually my ministry assistant's dad. Um, Mr. Baylor, was uh, one of our um, Dollar Club recipients about a year ago. He's a former pastor also. He's retired now, and he's a grandpa, and he loves to love on his granddaughter. And you know what? He loves to go to the nursing home over here and hold services for them. And he comes up to me after almost every single sermon, and he shakes my hand, and he says, Matt, that was, that was great. He's like, man, I learned this and this and this from you today. Oh, Matt, you just keep preaching the gospel. The people need to hear this message. And I literally, I'm not joking, I'm talking to some other pastors in other churches out of the state, and I'm using Rod, and I'm going, I wanna be him when I grow up. I wanna retire one day, and I wanna sit in a church, and I wanna just encourage the pastor and tell him, you go get it, man, you go get it. Man, I learned this from you today. I'm like, I don't even know how old he is. He's in his like 60s, and he's telling me I'm teaching him stuff. And I'm like, you could be doing this. You could teach me things. I wanna be that guy who later in my years is just pouring out my life and encouragement into other people. I got this other guy, his name is Chris Crisfield. Chris Crisfield was my uh, first, well, I guess technically my second boss, my first 
mentor. Chris Chrisfield is also now in his 60s. He's a single gentleman. He's got a crazy story. He was a missionary for eight years in Brazil. Think guys experience things. He tells me stories about stuff that I don't even know if I believe. Like casting out demons and crazy stuff. One day these drug dealers were mad at Chris Chrisfield because his, he was teaching the gospel and people started to come to faith and they were no longer useful to the drug dealers. And so this one particular really bad group of guys in, in Sao Paulo uh, put a, a hit out on his life and they actually picked the actual day they were gonna kill him and the day came and they forgot. <laughs> and they don't know why they forgot but it was an embarrassment on them because they'd let other people know. So they picked another day and that day came and they forgot. And I don't remember if it happened two or three times, but finally they decided to stop messing with Chris because they couldn't understand what it was about him, but there was something about him they didn't want anything to do with. And he's got all these crazy stories of stuff that happens. Like times he'll be talking to somebody and he'll share the gospel and they'll receive Jesus and that person will look at him and say, man, I've got to introduce you to my friend Jan or whatever it is. And like two days later, he's sitting in a coffee shop and he hears some people talking and he turns around and he says, hey, I just feel the need I'm supposed to talk to you guys. And one of them says, well, hi, my name is Jan. And he's like, I think I'm supposed to talk to you. And he's got all these crazy stories. And the reason they're crazy is because my friend Chris just wakes up every day and says, God, I just, I wanna do whatever you have planned for me today. Whatever that means, I just wanna go where you want me to go. I wanna be wherever you want me to be. And it's hard because I can't put it on a calendar. I can't schedule it. I can't control it. I can't organize it. It's just spirit-driven living. And I look at him and I go, I wanna be more like that. I wanna be more like that. So look, I don't know what this message does for you. Some of you are walking in here, you're just freaked out by the stories I'm telling. Here's what I know. God has more for you than you can even now envision. God has bigger ideas and thoughts and hopes and dreams than you're unlocking because right now you're stuck in trying to make yourself happy instead of trying to please him. And as long as you're doing that, You're gonna be looking for love in all the wrong places. What we wanna do right now is we wanna invite God into this place. We wanna ask God to awaken something in us. Maybe something that died or got hurt along the way or maybe something we've never allowed him to awaken in us. We wanna ask him to literally stir a passion inside our hearts. And what I wanna do is I just wanna pray well, Rhett and Amos come out here. And when I'm done praying, I'm just gonna ask that you stand and just cry out to God. Let's pray. Father God, we wanna be done with this world and the distractions of this world and the temptations of this world. Father, it's hard. We have an enemy. He hates us. He's trying to destroy us. And the flesh sometimes is so appealing. We don't want to live by the flesh. We don't want to live in our strength and in our power and in our might and in our ideas. We don't want to live out of self. God, we want to live for you. 
The same word, the same word that, that Jesus used with the disciples in the garden when he said, the spirit is willing, but the sarks is weak. It's the same word. Our flesh, God, it's weak. Our flesh, it fails us. But you, you never fail. You're always good. You're always strong. You're always patient. You're always kind. You're always faithful. God, we need you. Pour into us what we need that we might come alive in Jesus Christ and no longer live for self, but instead give ourselves fully to you and all that you have planned for us. And as we do, Lord, come be in this place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.